Nice. Okay. We're continuing in the series today called First Things First. And this is our second week of the series. Last week, we talked about what it means to honor God by putting him first with our time. And when we talked about our time, I gave you an acronym to hold on to because we asked the question, how do we put God's joy back into our schedule and back into our calendar? If we want the joy of the Lord, I gave you this acronym, Jesus, others, and yourself for joy. If we put Jesus first, then it will set us up to serve others well, the people in our world and all the things that seem to consume our time. We put Jesus first, we serve others well, and we find God's joy from his Holy Spirit being inserted into our calendar and into our schedule. We went from there to where we're at today, and we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're not going to talk about time. Today, we're going to talk about the temple, okay? We're going to talk about honoring God with our temple. Now, temple takes on two meanings from Scripture. We see an Old Testament meaning and a New Testament meaning, and that's what we're going to dive into, both of those contexts today, okay? When you look at the Old Testament meaning of the temple, it was a gathering place where God's people, most specifically the Israelites, gathered with, you know, together to commune with God or have this common space with God. We could do a lot of teaching on the Old Testament temple, but just to give you this quick nugget, when you look at the original writings and see what the temple was and what it represented, it was more than just a structure or a building. The definition of the word temple itself almost refers as much to a palace as anything else. It was a place where God was king, where he was Lord, and his people, who were his subjects, would gather together. And it was like he was offering a space where his people could meet with him in his presence, hearing his law or his word, if you will. And so that's the Old Testament picture of the temple. But then in the New Testament, what we see, and we're going to dive into this in a minute, is that the temple becomes not just an external structure or place. It becomes a very personal, individual place as well, because the Apostle Paul talks about how we, our bodies individually, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to make the statement at the outset of our message today because it's all going to tie together. We want to talk about how we honor God with our bodies and how we honor God by honoring his house or his temple. And while Old Testament and New Testament tend to give us a couple of different looks and contexts of the idea of temple, these two things are not at odds with each other. In fact, they work very well together throughout Scripture. We're going to talk about that today, okay? So if you've got your Bible, meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I want to start off today by talking about what it means to honor God or put him first with our bodies, okay? Our physical bodies that he has given to us. These were Paul's writings to the Corinthian church. Look at chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul says, All things are permitted for me, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Very important phrase, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. However, God will do away with both of them. This is speaking to the temporary condition that is our physical bodies and the things of this world. He goes on and he says, but the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but will also raise up us through his power. So you got to catch that, right? Jesus has been raised from the dead after his crucifixion. He's raised from the dead. Resurrection happens. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And while we are still left here on this earth, there is coming a time where our physical bodies will pass away. But guess what the good news is? God's going to raise us up and we will get a new eternal body that is not subject to the decay of this world. That's really good news in case you didn't catch that part. All right, now I've got to give you a warning because before we go into this next part, Paul talks about some very adult things in Scripture. 
There's a reason we have Bridge Kids program right now and Bridge Youth that's happening over there. So this is the adult service, so we're going to talk adult for a minute, so I'm just throwing the warning out there, okay? Not my words, but Paul's. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Shall I, shall I then take away the parts of Christ and make them parts of a prostitute? Heavy words. Far from it, he says. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now notice those words, the two shall become one flesh. That goes all the way back to the way that God put Adam and Eve together in Genesis 2. And then Jesus quotes those words from Scripture in the three synoptic Gospels. So he's really talking about how our flesh, when we come into relationship or sexual relationship with somebody else, we become one flesh with them. Now, here's why this is important. That specific thing Paul's talking about is not the topic of our sermon today. Don't worry. Breathe easy this morning. But the reason why Paul brought it up was because it was an issue in the Corinthian church there in the first century. He's saying there are a lot of you who are in Christ. You've made decisions to follow Christ. You've made progress. You're not who you used to be, and you found all this freedom in Christ, but yet you still, in one way with your flesh, are living a sinful lifestyle, and I'm here to tell you that that's not okay in the sight of God. So he calls that out. Now, again, he's not talking about all this for the sake of bringing up something graphic. He's literally talking to a specific issue that existed in the Corinthian church. So, again, breathe easy, okay? Breathe easy. But he goes on, look at verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And again, this is speaking of covenant. We come into this covenant relationship with God, and now we are one with God, or God dwells within us, you could say. So he goes on, and he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, that type of sin is one where the consequences are paid out on my own body. It's like sinning against yourself is what he's saying here. Verse 19, and these are the words that we know so well here in the New Testament church. Or do you not know that your body is a temple, everybody say temple, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in or with your body. Now, Paul says a lot right here, but in a big picture sense, he's talking about glorifying and honoring God with these physical temples that we have. And that's where we're going to start today. In verse 12, he makes a statement that I love. He says, all things are permitted for me, but not all things are of benefit. Can I take that phrase and put it a little bit differently? What Paul's saying is that we have a lot of freedom in Christ, and we are not bound to legalism. We are not bound to religiosity. He says, I have all kinds of freedom. And while there's a lot of things that are permissible, not everything is profitable. There are decisions I can make with my flesh, with my human body, and there's not a law written against it. There's no sort of legalism against it. But if I choose to indulge my flesh over and over again in things that can hurt it or not important to it, what I find is even though that was permissible, it's not profitable. I stand to gain nothing from it. So in my flesh, I can waste time or even waste parts of my life with how I invest it. And so Paul's talking about making sure we honor God with our bodies. Now, I want to show you this because he goes on in verse 12 and he says, I will not be mastered by anything. And I think that this is the overall point he's wanting to make here. We cannot, as people of God, as, as Christians, we cannot allow things of this world or fleshly things to master us. He says, I refuse to be mastered by those things. I will master them. And this is important that we grab this. Now, 
if you look at this and you were to read it in a different translation, if you go back to the King James writing, the way that it's written is it says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. I will not allow anything of the flesh to bring me under its power. When you look at the original writings here in the Greek and in, in Paul's writings, the word power in the Greek is the word exousiazo. And it's the Greek word from which we get our English word exercise. And what he's saying is, I will not allow anything of this world to exercise power over my flesh. Instead, I will exercise power over my flesh. I will make sure that my power does not get mastered by anything, of, or my, my flesh is not mastered or under the power of anything of this world. And here's what's a cool picture, I think. When I see that word exercise, here's the first thought that comes to my mind. Have you guys seen those, those uh, gym fails videos where people are in the gym working out and you're like, they're doing some exercise that you're like, I don't even know what that is. Like, I, I don't know what part of the body you are working out by performing the 20 reps of whatever that is you're doing there. But my favorite gym fail videos are the ones where people take on these weird contortion positions on some sort of exercise machinery and they've got their feet up on the handles and they're trying to lift too much weight and as soon as they try to get that first rep in, the thing just jerks back and like flips them over into a pretzel on top of the machine or something. And the picture that you see when you see those gym fail videos, I was actually going to show some but I knew copyrights were going to be a problem. But what's great about the gym fail videos is every time I see one of those, it's almost as if the machine is exercising the person rather than the person exercising the machine. And I think that that helps us understand what Paul's saying here. He says, there are things of this world that I have the freedom to indulge in, but as soon as I start to indulge in those things, isn't it funny how quickly they can become master over me? And Paul says, I'm not going to let those things exercise me. I'm going to make sure that I am exercising authority over them. And he's making the statement, he says, God wants us to be the masters of our bodies, be in control of our bodies, or more specifically, God wants to be the Lord of our bodies. Now, we could spend a lot of time here, but he gives us two specific things. He talks about two appetites. He talks about an appetite for food, and he also talks about sexual immorality or sexual appetites. We're not going to dive deep into either one of those things, but he puts them there side by side saying, you cannot allow these things to master you. He says, food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. But then he turns and he puts it in context, and he says, but God is going to do away with these things. In other words, earthly food and the satisfaction of my stomach is here today, but it will be gone in eternity. And so if I indulge myself over and over and over again in either of those areas or in any other area of you know, physical indulgence, fleshly indulgence, I can allow those things to master me. And he says, God doesn't want you to live your life that way. Don't allow things to exercise authority over you. See, as human beings, we make a lot of fleshly decisions based upon what we want right now. We make a lot of decisions based upon what we want right now. But isn't it funny that when we often find ourselves indulging in fleshly things, the things that we want in the long term always pay a price for the thing that we want right now. And if we are constantly indulging in what we want right now, want right now, want right now, we often don't step into the things that we want to achieve. Later, Paul says, you can't let those things master you. You've got to move on. When we do that, we often sacrifice what we want ultimately at the expense of what we want right now. Now, I want to give you three really quick thoughts. These aren't points, just quick thoughts, okay? These are some mistakes that we often make with our bodies, okay? Simple things I think we can all kind of just digest and take home. First of all, number one, we often neglect our bodies. Just be honest, we often neglect our bodies. 
Neglecting something is leaving it alone, trusting it's just going to continue to function the way it always has. How many of you have found out that that works really well when you don't change the oil on your engine, in your car? It's like, oh, it's cool. It's just going to keep going. It's just going to keep going. And it's just going to keep going until one day it doesn't. And then you hope you could fix it. Same principle applies to our bodies. If we neglect it, we're saying it's just going to keep working. It's just going to keep working. It's just going to keep working until one day it doesn't. Can I tell you something? God doesn't want, to neglect our, want us to neglect our bodies. They might not be the most important things in our lives, but he's given them to us, so therefore we need to steward them. Amen? What about this with your body? Some of us neglect them. Number two, some of us just flat out reject them. Well, God, I don't really like this body you gave me. Why didn't you give me their body? I know that sounds a little bit like envy and jealousy. I'm not trying to go there with it, but I'll tell you what. Sometimes we can look at the imperfections of our body, and we can become ungrateful to God. We can say, why'd you give me this temple? Why'd you give me that temple? I mean, look, I wish I was 6'4", 215, but I'm not. And there ain't no amount of work I can do in the gym that's going to get me there. So rather than being ungrateful for the body that God did give me, and listen, I know that some of us are born with bigger challenges than others. I understand that. And a big part of that is just a product of the fallen nature of the world in which we live. But I'll tell you something. Something amazing happens when we are grateful to God for the bodies he's given us. You say, God, I'm grateful that you've given this to me, so therefore I choose to thank you, and I choose to be a good steward of what you've given me, believing that even though this body's Im- imperfect, one day you're going to give me an everlasting perfect one. That's the promise of God. That's what we have to look forward to. So some of us neglect and some of us reject our bodies, but what about this? Total other end of the spectrum. Some of us are working really hard to try to perfect our bodies. Nothing wrong with going to the gym. Nothing wrong with being a healthy eater. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But what happens when that that thing becomes the Lord of me? My body is the Lord of me rather than me being the Lord, God being the Lord of it. It's mastering me rather than me mastering it. We can work really hard to stay healthy, and that's a good thing, but we can't allow that thing to master us and become an idol in our lives. Amen? Amen. So be healthy. You go to the gym. You eat good. You do those things. You do that slim fast or whatever. I don't know. People don't do that anymore. Do you do that whole 30, okay? I'm just saying, but don't allow that thing to become the Lord of your life. Now, all of that brings us to an important question. How do we take back control of our bodies when we've lost control? I think the answer is found in verse 19 of the same passage we just read. Look at what Paul writes. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, watch these words, within us? Guess what, Christian friend? The Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, is not on the outside. He's on the inside. The Holy Spirit lives here. He's right here. And look what it says next, whom you have from God, like a gift from God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. You don't have to try to overcome your fleshly weaknesses on your own. The Holy Spirit wants to help. So this is where we find the rest of the answer. Now, this is what I want to show you. I think this is so cool. A lot of us look at the fleshly challenges that we often have, our indulgences, our physical fleshly weaknesses, and we look at those things and say, I have this physical or fleshly problem, how do I overcome it? And our automatic answer is to say, I do it through some sort of physical or fleshly solution. And what we say is, I have this physical indulgence, whether it's a sexual thing, whether it's a food thing, whatever it might be, it could be a number of things. And we say, the way I solve this fleshly problem is through a fleshly solution. You say, I'm going to deny that appetite, deny that appetite, starve that thing, starve that thing, starve that thing. Can I tell you what I've learned over the years? Is the more I starve something, the hungrier I grow in that area. 
And the first chance that I get to let my guard down, I will devour everything in sight because I've starved that thing and starved that thing and starved that thing. Listen, if there's an unhealthy appetite in any area of our lives, God wants us to starve that. He wants us to starve our flesh, starve our flesh, starve our flesh. But you know what he wants to do simultaneously? Feed our spirit, feed our spirit, feed our spirit, feed our spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is within us. The Holy Spirit is here to help. If we will starve one appetite, he will help us. And we make, we're, we're intentional. We feed this appetite. He will help us grow. He will help us overcome that thing that we are weak to when it comes to the things of the flesh. Everybody with me this morning? He says, you can do this. You can master this. You can get this under control. But you're going to have to choose to deny or starve one appetite and feed the other. And if we'll choose to do that, what we'll see is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us now. This leads us to what we're doing over the course of the next few days. We're going to be stepping in to the next two weeks, a time of prayer and fasting. We've talked about this the last two Sundays. I know there's a lot of people in the church that are joining in. We would love for you to join us. We would love for you to be a part of this. Fasting is not twisting God's arm to do something for me. Fasting is not me trying to impress God and show him how spiritual I am. He knows that I'm not as spiritual as some of you might think I am. He knows the truth. God knows the truth. There's no fooling God. Fasting is denying one appetite and feeding another. What a good time to overcome some fleshly stuff. I want to say one other thing real quick. I hope this encourages everybody because we're stepping into this over the next few days. Perfect time to overcome some stuff, but here's the thing. When we see fasting in Scripture, I just want to throw this out there so that way we know what the truth is from Scripture. When we see fasting in Scripture, it's only ever defined by one thing. There's only one definition of fasting in Scripture, and that is the abstaining of food and drink. It's nothing else. Fasting is not dieting. All right, so literally some people are like, well, that sounds really hard. Yeah, not easy. Starve one appetite, feed another, okay? So I would encourage you to consider how you could jump into this this week, be fasting and praying with us as a church. We see fasting all throughout scripture. I'm excited to jump into this, believing that God's just gonna, as we draw near to him, he's gonna draw near to us, all right? So we encourage you to do that. A great time to overcome some things of the flesh. Now, as we've talked about our physical bodies, speaking of taking care of these physical bodies, what about rest? And this is one of the things a lot of people were asking about last week. Because when we talk about Jesus, others, and yourself, everybody's like, when do we get to the yourself part? Like, what about me? What about me? What about the rest I need? What about the healthy me? What about self-care Sunday? What about all that stuff, you know? And I think that one of the things I've come to understand is that in the kingdom of God, joy is Jesus, others, yourself. But in the world in which we live, joy is Y-O-J. It's me, others, and maybe I got time for God. That's yaj, right? <laughs> but there is something that God wants to do. He's given us solutions for how we can find a healthy us and find rest in the middle of the craziness of life. So here's where I want to do right now. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the Sabbath. The Sabbath, okay? Genesis chapter 2. This is what it says after God has created the heavens and the earth. This is before Adam and Eve. It says, and so the heavens and earth were completed in all their heavenly lights. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, or set it apart, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now I want you to notice in verse 2, it says that God rested on the seventh day. That word rest in the Hebrew is the word Shabbat, from which we get our English word Sabbath, okay? Here's the big question. How many think God needed to rest? Let me ask it this way. How many of you think God was tired? He's like, I need a breather. 
See, I don't think so because God's omnipotent. I don't think God ever gets tired or runs out of energy. I don't think God needed to rest. Here's what I believe. I think God did it because he knew we were going to need to follow his example. It's kind of like when Jesus went to get baptized. John's like, you want me to baptize you? And Jesus is like, I understand what you're thinking, but I have to be baptized. And Jesus said to fulfill all righteousness. And I think what Jesus was doing was I need to do this to set a pattern for all those who will follow. I think God took a Sabbath day of rest to set a pattern for you and I, knowing it was going to be a blessing to us if we would choose to honor it. Everybody with me? Can I tell you something this morning? You need rest. I mean, you know that. But a lot of us, we don't take the time to give it to ourselves. And God says, no, I'm telling you that you should take it because I took it too. You say, well, where does God say to do that? Look at Exodus chapter 20. This is in the Ten Commandments, okay? And if you take the Ten Commandments and you set it aside on its own, this is God's picture of morality for humanity, okay? And one of the ways that he wants to bring balance to our lives is through this picture of rest, most specifically the Sabbath. This is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy or set apart from the others. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So God sets the commandment by first, or he sets the precedent by doing it first himself. Then he gives it as a command to his people in the Old Testament. And what we see here is that it becomes this standard where if we will enter into a time of rest, God will give us the rest that we need. Now, a lot of this is speaking specifically to our physical bodies. But how many know, I don't just need physical rest. I need mental rest. I need emotional rest. I sometimes need psychological rest. There's all kinds of forms of rest that I and you need in our lives. Now, last week, one of the things that we talked about was what, Matt, what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me. It's the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You labor and you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we talked about how that wasn't just physical rest. It's mental rest, emotional rest, psychological rest, every kind of rest that we need so that we can be a completely balanced human being that God called us to be, that he will give us the rest that we need, spiritual rest as well. Sometimes when we look at these commandments and these pictures in the Old Testament, we can think, well, that sounds Old Testament, and I'm not so sure that applies today. Does God want me to have a Sabbath, per se? Does he want me really to have a time of rest? Do I have to acknowledge that? Because I'll tell you what, Zach, I'm about that hustle, okay, and I'm making this money over here, and, you know, money never sleeps, so i got to keep going six, seven, eight days a week. Do I still have to do that? Well, this is what Jesus said about it. In Mark 2, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. God created it for us, for our benefit. He created it for our benefit and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, what did we just say in Mark 11? That if we come to Jesus, he will give us rest. God ordains rest at the beginning of time. And then Jesus affirms it later on and says, come to me and I'll give you all these kinds of rests, rest that you need. And I think the picture that we see is that God wants to bring mis- mental physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological rest to our lives if we will set aside the time to get it. But we've got to be the ones to set it aside and do it. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'll tell you one of the things that I've learned is that if I don't choose to intentionally set aside, set aside time for rest, I usually don't find it. I heard a pastor say one time that what he does every single week on his calendar is that he puts one day One day, a Sabbath day, where he looks at his calendar and marks off the whole day where all it says on his calendar is nothing. 
And he said, one day a friend came to him and said, hey, I'd love to get together for lunch with you this week. And he said, okay. And he said, what works? And he said, what are you doing on Wednesday? He goes, I got nothing going Wednesday. He said, okay, cool, let's do lunch on Wednesday. He says, I don't think you understand. I've got nothing going on Wednesday. And he says, well, if you've got nothing going on Wednesday, why can't we get together for lunch on Wednesday? He says, I don't think you understand. And he said, he showed his phone to the, the gentleman and said, I've got nothing going on Wednesday because that's my Sabbath day. That's my day of rest. And he said, I've instituted that principle and I've noticed that God has always kept me fresh. He's always kept me refreshed when I needed it the most. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for us. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. That's a lot of stuff. I don't think you and I can do anywhere near as much as God did in six days. But can I tell you something? If you feel like you need to fill out all seven days of your schedule in order to get everything done, we need to stop and look to God and be reminded that if we will give him a Sabbath day, he'll help us be, be more productive in the six that we work on. And not all of us work on six. A lot of us just work on five. But we've got to take time and find time to rest. Now, here's where we're going to land today. One of the big points of confusion when we talk about rest and the Sabbath, when we go from Old Testament to New Testament and try to get all of this right and straight in our lives, is the Sabbath day supposed to be a day of rest only where I do absolutely nothing? Or is the Sabbath a day of worship as well? In other words, here's the big question, is the Sabbath day the day that I rest or is it the day that I also go to church? Because those two things can't be the same. Bless God, it's work to go to church and, you know, we get out, man, and get the kids together and get myself dressed and da-da-da-da-da. I think sometimes what we do is we take Old Testament to New and we get legalistic about this. But let me show you a really cool picture in Scripture. Let's go to everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus 23. <laughs> Leviticus 23, this is what it says in verse 3. Again, talking about the Sabbath. For six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. Everybody say convocation. That's a weird word that you've probably never even said before. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. If you go back and you look at the original Hebrew for that word convocation, it's the Hebrew word mikra, which means a gathering, a reading, and a sacred assembly. And even though in the Old Testament there was not a mandate that on the Sabbath you must be in the house of God, it was implied in the text and the Israelites started going to the house of the Lord even on the Sabbath. And what we see is that even the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 and 66, he affirms this idea of the gathering on the Sabbath. But here's what's so cool about it. Then we go to the New Testament, and what we see is that in four places in the Gospels, when the Sabbath day arrived, Jesus went to the synagogue and he taught. And people were there to listen and be with one another and worship together. We see three times in the book of Acts that Paul goes to the synagogue on, synagogue on the Sabbath and either gathers as one of the believers or does the teaching himself. We see seven times in Paul's teaching alone where he gives instructions to the believers. He says, when you gather in your gathering or when you assemble, all of these are emphasizing the importance of the gathering of the believers in faith and in unity. And if we call ourselves Christians, our scriptural tradition makes it clear that a primary part of our devotion to God is gathering in his house with his people to sing his praises and to honor his word. And the only way we can make an argument to the contrary is if we are looking for a reason not to do it. Sorry if that came off strong. But that's what we do sometimes is we look for reasons not to do it. So I find that one verse that says, well, yet the scriptural tradition paints the picture so clearly that if we are believers, it's our call 
to gather together in the house of God. And this is the very last passage of scripture I want to show you. Hebrews 10. Many of you know where I'm going. Hebrews 10, look at verse 23. Let us, everybody say us. Let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope or faith without wavering for he, God, who promised is faithful. That's one of my life verses. I love that verse of scripture with all my heart because when I look to the promises of God for my life and for this earth and for his kingdom, I hold on to them, I grab them, and I continue to confess them over my life knowing that God will bring them to fruition. And when I'm in relationship with God, I get stronger and stronger in my ability to do that. But can I tell you what? I'm a whole lot better at holding fast to my faith when I can be in a community of people who are doing the same thing. And a lot of us become weak when we abandon those God wants to place in our lives and we try to do our Christianity or our faith alone. So what? Look at verse 24. And let's consider how to encourage one another. In what? In love and in good deeds. This is what the house of God is for. That we would gather and be encouraged, not just by God to us, but we would be encouraging one another in love and in good deeds. And then finally, look where he lands in verse 25. Not abandoning. Other translations say not forsaking our own meeting together. Others of you, you know this passage. It says not forsaking the assembling of the saints or the assembling of each other. As is the habit of some people, we won't call names today, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, last couple of things here. When you see this phrase meeting together or the King James says the assembling, I want to point something out. We say the word assembly with a Y at the end. The word in the King James is not assembly with a Y, it's I-N-G, assembling. It's like the picture of a building and all of its parts being built and coming together. I am one of the parts of the house of God, but it's incomplete without you. And you are one of the parts of the house of God, but it's incomplete without me. And all of us have to be coming together because we have something to offer each other. And the house of God is not fully complete and constructed and assembled if you and I are not taking our place within it. And one of the great signs of spiritual maturity is when I understand that it's not just about me and God, but God wants to do things in me and through me for you. And God wants to do things in you and through you for me. Because that is when the house of God is truly assembled the way that he intended. When you see that word assembling, I-N-G, in the Greek, the original word there is the word episunagogue, which is the word from which we get the word synagogue. And it's like saying that you and I are the new covenant, New Testament synagogue of God, of Christ, when we are joined together and assembled in his house. God does special things when his people come together. Faith rises. People are encouraged in love and good deeds. And we are equipped to be the church of God when we go out into our individual lives. My spiritual life is not complete without you. And your spiritual life is not complete without me. In closing, one of the big questions that I asked when I was studying this out over the last several weeks was, I guess I'd never been taught this, is in the Old Testament... The Sabbath is Saturday. That was what the Jewish tradition was. But today here in the 21st century, we celebrate, you know, on Sunday is when we gather in the house of God and often refer to today as the Sabbath day. When did that change? What we see is that somewhere in the first four centuries after the church had been born, they started to really gather together on Sundays for one reason, to break away from the Jewish tradition and kind of differentiate themselves from the Jewish people that didn't accept Christ 
That was one reason. But the second reason was because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And so they said, this is the day that we're going to gather together as his body, as his family, as his church. And here's the question I want to ask you. What day of the week is the first day? It, it's Sunday, right? Okay, they, they said it's Sunday. Do you guys agree with that? Okay. If you look at your calendar, it will confirm the answer, all right? Sunday is the first day of the week. But isn't it interesting how often we treat Sunday like the last? Because, man, I go hard Monday to Friday so I can get my weekend. And I need those two days to get refreshed so that I can get back to it on Monday because, my goodness, it's busy. I gotta, I'm telling you guys, I'm, I'm solid with this hustle over here. And I got to go hard Monday through Friday. And sometimes we treat the Lord's Day like it's the last day, not the first day. But what if we approached our week as if the resurrection of Jesus was the very first thing on the calendar? Today I arise on the Lord's Day to be with the Lord's people, to grow in his purposes, recognizing that the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for me. And I can look at my calendar, I can look at my Monday, I can look at my Tuesday knowing that I'm waking up from a place of resurrection because Jesus has brought me back to life. What if Sunday was a first day, not a last day? See, if we have a first things first attitude and we say, God, I'm going to honor you, I'm going to be in your house with your people, I'm going to hear your word and I'm going to grow in your purposes, man, what would our life look like if we did that? But here's the deal. If we want to put God first, we have to honor him with our bodies, our temples, our physical bodies, and we need to honor his temple because it's a sacred place. And where two or three come together, he's here with us. I've had God do amazing things in my quiet time, my personal devotion, and I love it when he does, when he speaks to me. But there ain't nothing like being in the house of God with you guys. And I don't want anybody to miss out on what God wants to serve when we build this table because he's got some seriously rich food that he wants to deliver into our lives and wants us to deliver to each other. So let's be grown-ups. Let's be mature believers. Let's take our place in the house of God. Let's submit our bodies to him. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I give my life to you, my body to you, and I choose to honor your temple and take my place in it so that your body can be fully assembled as well. Amen. Father, I thank you for every person in the house this morning. God, I'm so excited about all that you're doing in people's lives throughout, not just this series, but just on a very personal basis, the things you're speaking to people as we've taken our place in the house of God. And I honor these people today who have made that, that devotional decision to be in your house. I pray that you would meet them wherever they are, whatever's going on in their life. Father, I pray for two specific things today. Number one, I pray for every person in the house today who's fighting this fleshly physical battle where something is mastering them. I pray that this week, right now, in this moment, as we step into the week, the two weeks in front of us for fasting and praying, I pray you just nudge their hearts to take a step toward you. And together, not by themselves, but together, I pray that as we starve certain appetites in our lives and feed other appetites, our spiritual appetite, that we would grow closer to you, we would see you move in our life, that you, we would see you bring about change in our life, that you would draw us closer to one another to be encouraged and strengthened in Jesus' name. I speak freedom over people's lives who are dealing with fleshly addictions today in Jesus' name. If there are things that are mastering them, we pray that you would be the master of those things and that you would come in and cast those things out as they look to you. You would bring health and wholeness in people's physical bodies today in Jesus' name. 
And finally, God, this is your house. We recognize the value of your house. We recognize the value of one another. As we take our place in your house, I pray that we would see the fruit start to form in our life, God, as the relationships grow and we are strengthened and encouraged. As our kids come together with one another, God, I pray in Jesus' name that the kids of the Bridge Church, as they are in this house, they would be strengthened and encouraged by the relationships they make, not just the God that they hear about, but the people who surround them would encourage them in their faith. For Bridge Youth the same, God, I pray that they would be strengthened in their walk with you and in their relationships, that they would know how to hold fast to their confession of faith because they are surrounded by people who are doing the same. And as we value your house, I pray that you would strengthen us together in Jesus' name. Lastly, with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe today you've never made a decision to invite God into your life. The way we do that is by saying yes to Jesus. Jesus, his son, who took our place on the cross, who died a death that we deserve for our sins. That same Jesus traded heaven and earth to come down and take on human flesh just like us and became the sacrifice that could bring us back into relationship with God. If you're here today and you've never invited God into your life by saying yes to Jesus, there's no better decision you could ever make. And I wanna encourage you to do that today. If you feel in your heart like perhaps there's just something tugging at you, that's the spirit of God saying it's time to open up and say yes to Jesus. Invite him to become your Lord and Savior. I want to pray a prayer right now. This isn't about magic words. It's not even about my words. It's about your decision and your commitment to Christ. You don't have to repeat my words, but I just want to invite you to make some words of your own, a commitment to Christ today, and invite God into your life. Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior who went to the cross for me. I believe that your death was full payment for my sin, and that because of that death, I have been forgiven and atoned from my sin And today I choose to walk back into relationship with God. But Jesus, I don't want you to just be my savior today. I want you to be my Lord every day. So I choose to follow you all the days of my life into the eternity you have prepared for me. I commit my life to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.